Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Gravity Podcast. I'm really excited to debut a new episode format today, one that brings together a handful of voices that I've had the honor of having on the show since we launched it almost two years ago. Since then, there's been some common themes. One of them is that there's this uh, idea of learning entrepreneurship as, as children. From the lemonade stands to the inspirational mentors, many of our guests have shared their version of this story, that we've strung them all together now to tell a larger story of commonality and growth. Yeah, for me, it was uh, many things. I guess um, my first true business was stringing tennis rackets, which I started at about 15 years old and retired from by the age of 18. But I did string tennis rackets for the Bexley tennis team and others in the neighborhood and learned a tremendous amount about what it meant to be responsible uh, for other people's success and um, all kinds of incredible lessons along the way. But most of all, it was fun. It was a passion and it was a very early uh, introduction to entrepreneurship for me. Claire Cotter, founder and CEO of AntFlow, kicks us off with her adorably exploitive neighborhood beer stand. So tell me, how old were you when you were selling beer to construction workers? Yeah, I was about six or seven. I was, you know, I, it was a summer and I was with my friend Dana and uh, there, weren't, there weren't many people walking around our neighborhood, but um, there were construction workers working down the road at a house. And um, we were like, oh, today is our perfect day for a lemonade stand. It was sunny. It was hot. It was middle of summer. We had our target market available and thirsty. And we're mixing up some crystal light lemonade in the kitchen. And it occurred to me that I have, uh, that these construction workers looked a lot like my dad. Um, you know, most stereotypical construction worker. And uh, I realized my dad never drank my mom's Crystal Light lemonade. What he did drink was beer from the mini fridge. And so at this age, we're raiding my dad's beer fridge, um, taking beer by the can, walking it down the road to these construction workers and saying, hey, you can buy this beer for $5 a can. Um, of course, they laughed and, you know, they, we, we made $25. We sold five cans, $25. The first $25 I made... My babysitter was supposed to be looking out after us. She wasn't watching this whole thing, but I remember my dad coming home and calling my babysitter and saying, like, that telling her that she was fired because she, my dad thought that she had taken his beer. Oh, and no. I walk out with a puffed chest and tell him that how proud I was that I sold it. Uh, and my dad was like, Well, I need to teach you about cost of goods sold. You need to give me at least $12 back. Um, so not only was I selling beer, I was also buying beer for my dad at that time. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so it's a, funny, it's a funny story, but yeah. um, the, the, the takeaways is obviously like learn your target market, lean into it, understand cost of goods sold. Um, and of course, that wasn't my only childhood story, but that was yeah. uh, just a funny entrepreneurial relevant childhood story. Jenny Britton-Bauer was a quiet child filled with creativity, 
putting a divide between what she felt and what she experienced. In this clip, we delve into how this contrast in her childhood became the inspiration for her entrepreneurial future. I'm curious because it's a subject that, you know, in my own life has has been kind of um, something that I've had to explore and uncover. And I think is is not uncommon that, you know, people don't excel in, in school for a lot of reasons. And, you know, sometimes that can be the environment, the, the actual school environment. Sometimes it can be, you know, what's happening at home, you know, it can be a lot of things. And I think, you know, what, what tends to happen, what happened to me is you kind of, you, you make some decisions or some stories based on that experience. Um, you know, not paying attention for me in school was a, was a tool that I had used to learn to disassociate from what was going on at home. And I became kind of a daydreamer. Um, which turned out to be a, a superpower, you know, for a while, but it was really a form of kind of escaping. Um, and, you know, not that that's true for you or for everybody, but, you know. Well, and it put you in different times in your mm-hmm. life. I mean, um, and, and you, when you've developed these skills and I'm, I'm a daydreamer to the point where it like can sometimes feel mm-hmm. real. Like I'm, um, you know, I don't drive a car, I drive a spaceship mm-hmm. kind of thing, but um, like, Depending on the time of my life, that daydreaming, that escape became an escape. Do you know what I mean? And I still use that now when I need it for literally to escape, of course, to imagine the future and to bring something to life and innovation and all of that stuff and growth and all that. But, but yeah, it just, I think, you know, when you, depending on your life or, you know, what era you're at in your life and what, what's happening. Yeah. And so how did that experience of kind of, you know, not really getting settled in a school or feeling like school was necessarily for you. Um, how did that then kind of shape you and being kind of break the mold kind of person that you are? I mean, did it, you know, what influence did that really have on how you've moved forward with life? I mean, I knew, I think I knew early on that having a traditional career would be a lot like being in school. And so mm-hmm. um, I felt like I needed to own my future and own my own life. And so when I heard about like, you can just, you know, start a business and support yourself and make your own career. Like that was for me. We know Mikey Saboro can make a killer pizza. In episode 67, he revealed that his culinary exploits started with lemonade, serving a customer base that you'll hear marketed to a few different times in this episode. You know, what was kind of underneath like some of that, you know, um, early stuff for you as a kid? You know, I, I can, as I've grown a little bit, you know, you have the, the gift of, of reflection and uh, of hindsight. So I kind of started looking at a few things, you know, way back early. And, uh, you know, it's funny to look back at a lemonade stand as like a pivotal point in your childhood, but uh where my parents' house was, was directly across the street from this giant water tower. We lived across the street from a park and there was this giant water tower there. And during one of the summers, they decided to paint this water tower. And if you've ever, I'm sure most everyone here within earshot has never been witness to the painting of a giant water tower, but that was, we had this really unique, you know, setup where the, they were, they were painting this thing and it took them weeks to do. So being the kind of industrious young kids, me and my sisters were, we set up a lemonade stand directly across the street from where there was like, you know, 20, 30 dudes 
uh, painting this water tower for weeks on end and we cleaned up, <laughs> you know, we just, of course we were using, you know, mom and dad's sugar and lemons and everything, uh, and Kool-Aid, I think at the time, but you know, I, I look back at that thing and I'm like, all right, you know, that was one of those times where, you know, we saw an opportunity, uh, you know, albeit as, you know, children and, uh, and, you know, we actually had a pretty decent result from, you know, looking at an opportunity and little things came from that. You know, I, I remember having this one idea where, you know, when you were really small, you could go to like the little festivals or carnivals and you could, you know, play a game and then win a prize. And a lot of these prizes were these inflatables, like an inflatable crayon or an inflatable hammer or an inflatable animal or something like that. And I thought, well, why have to go and wait to, for a carnival to come to town or one of the fairs to come to town? I got one of these oriental trading magazines that just came in, you know, the, uh, the, the mail at one point. And I was like, why don't we just order all these and then we can sell them like a lemonade stand. So I would go around to people's garage sales and ask if I could just set up a little, I had this little, little picnic table that I'd drag around in a, in a, in a wagon. And then I'd ask them to set up in front of their, in their driveway and he'd sell these inflatable crayons. And I don't think we really ever sold anything. I mean, they're a couple dollars. I maybe made 10 bucks, but you know, those little things you look back on and you're like, you know, that maybe that did define a little bit of what was to come, you know, later in, later in life. Happy Scott Donald was in third grade when he started selling a very 90s craft that some listeners might be familiar with. Now, with MyFirstSale.com, he's empowering and educating kids to start their own businesses. My first business was in third grade. <laughs> I love business. It's uh, from the get-go. It's, oh my gosh, it's right here. That is <laughs> awesome. Check this out. This, so we, we started a business called um, MyFirstSale.com this year when COVID hit. Okay. And what it does is it teaches kids entrepreneurship. From ages uh-huh. like seven to 15, we teach them all these cool like three-minute videos on profit and pitch and how to find your passion and literally start a small product. And then we give you a storefront to sell it on our website, myfirstsale.com. We bring you a ton of sales. Mm-hmm. And the kids are making like five, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks on their launch day. It's like a three-week program that you don't have to have it forever. It's just a quick, fun family project that teaches you all about these free market principles. Here's my first business. Third grade, bead gecko keychains. Look at this. I, I, my mom found this and shipped it to me last year. And I've been like having it on my desk ever That's since. So great. Howard Getson, the president and CEO of Capital Logics, was inspired by comic books as a kid. But you might be surprised which characters resonated with him the most. In the back of cartoons, you know, the 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 little cartoon books, you know, Archie comics or whatever, comics, comic books. They always had these uh, little ads. And so I saw the ads for Charles Atlas and Joe Weider and all that stuff. And I would, I would send away for the free sample of this, you know, the guaranteed placebo that. Um, but later, I started clipping a lot of those ads. And it's fascinating how similar marketing is now. You've got click funnels and landing pages, uh, but headlines and, and grabbing attention is the same. And uh, even in my very first real entrepreneurial activity, 
I went back to a lot of the the headlines that I remembered as kids and and tried to be empathetic and get into the mind of the buyer that way. But but really that thought process started way back there. I mean, what gets an eight-year-old to do chores and, and start a business so they can raise enough money so they can buy the thing that they've been thinking about in the back of a comic book? Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably some of my first entrepreneurial endeavors. Although I sold fireflies and frogs. We had a, a, a creek behind our house and I used to catch frogs and sell them to the other kids. Um, in, in sixth grade, I started my first, I would call it real business. We created a little factory in our basement and I, I would make hand-done sand painting terrariums and then I sold them to local florists with handmade signs that said made by a local sixth grade student. Um, yeah. In high school, I was the starting varsity quarterback, uh, starting as a sophomore. And I had a, uh, a door-to-door, I would sell stereos. And I would knock on somebody's door and say, uh, uh, hi, I'm Howard Getson. Oh, I know who you are. Uh-huh. But then I would sell them a stereo. That's great. And Howard, tell me that this kind of you know entrepreneurial uh, way, which obviously came in very early, you know, and as as a child, was that something that was uh, you were around? Were your parents entrepreneurs, or, oh, or where my, would you attribute that kind of energy coming from? My my parents swear I came out of the womb that way. Uh, one of my favorite first toys was a cash register. Uh, my, my other grandfather owned a pharmacy and I used to sit at the cash register and I would take the money and learn how to make change and stuff. And I thought that was really cool. Uh, and he would pay me at, at the end of the day by giving me a pack of juicy fruit gum. Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker Nick Nanton learned lessons from his parents that he carries with him to this day as a father of three. The thing about being a kid that's so interesting when I look back at it, a couple of things. Number one, you don't realize that your parents were growing up with you. And then it's like a really important point. Like, because mm, now that great. Yeah. now that I'm a parent, like I, I'm growing up with my kids. Like we're growing up totally. together. It's, it's, yeah. it's that. And, and number two, um, the things that make you stand out as a kid are ultimately what make you really successful in the world if you can learn to embrace them. And I think there's some really pivotal moments in all of our lives where I think certainly most kids, certainly like in middle school and even high school, like try to blend in. Like, I just don't want to be called out. I just don't want to be put in front of the class. I just don't, you know, whatever. And so we try to be we try to be the same as everybody else. So at these times when like I lived in a pretty good suburb and everyone else had these, like there were just things I just remember not having. Now, Mm -hmm. again, was it dire straits? No. And I think, you know, the way we process our life is really important, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but it's just what I processed. I processed that I couldn't, I couldn't have some of the things that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I, and I just remember there's a turning point, like, well, it wasn't that I couldn't have them, just my parents couldn't give them to me. So I very early in life, a lot of kids find it out after college or whenever, figure out like, oh, this, if I want to do something, I have to find my own way. Um, mm-hmm. Along with that, my parents were just, I mean, super supportive. I played very competitive tennis. I was playing tennis in the state of Florida, ranked in the probably top 50-ish when it's, by the time I was in the 16s. 18s, mm-hmm. I, I broke the top 100, starting to get 
scholarship offers and that sort of thing. And I remember like, so talk about love. Like I played at this place where it was, for I lived in Lake Mary, Florida, and my parents still live in that same house. Uh, and there was this tennis training academy where they had at one point well, during my career, they had the number one number one player in the nation, the men's 18s or boys 18s, boys 16s, the number one girl in like 16s and 14s. And we had like 10 players there that had come from across the country that were top 10 in the country going all the way up and playing junior Wimbledon, US Open, all this stuff. But oh, I could not afford, my parents couldn't afford for me to play there. So we did maintenance for the club. So that was, so I remember my parents one day digging, I think we redug sprinkler ditches. Like mm-hmm. and my, my parents, you know, my parents are grown ass people out mm-hmm. there with me, you know, digging ditches. You know, my dad at the time um, was working for a manufacturer for a pool table and spa company. Things were starting to, you know, get a little better, but it was just like, man, it was, it, they just, they did whatever we needed. They were there. CEO of Beam Dental, Alex Frohmeyer, was sharpening his financial skills while most kids his age were learning to color inside the lines. And I know just from um, reading a little bit about you as well that you know you've been um, very uh, you, you've been very uh, conscious of how you've chosen to live, um, including you know things like not having a car and, um, you know, um, not having traditional furniture in your home. You know, I wonder just how much of that kind of connects back to that experience where your parents, you know, did um, kind of uh, impart on you having appreciation and value in things that um, maybe are, are more important or that you know you don't necessarily have to have the things that everybody has you know how much of that has kind of come through as an adult as a kid learning um the lessons around not having or not allowing yourself to have all the material uh goods i think was a great lesson um really great on you know i learned you know save your money that was a great lesson early on is here's your allowance, but here's how you save it. Here's how you balance the checkbook. I was balancing a checkbook at five years old and I was getting a quarter a week in an allowance or something. And so that savings culture that, um, you know, make sure your money goes toward the thing you know you really, really want. And that's probably means delayed gratification because the thing you think you want right now might change in a week or a month or a year. So save your money and make sure you really want it before you go all in. That, that was taught early on. And then later in life, let's say college or maybe just post-grad, I learned the second big lesson along the lines that I think informs a lot of my lifestyle decisions subsequently, which is critical thinking. Everybody else has a couch in their house. I hate couches. I hate them. Uh, that came, that's a very intentional decision. Um, doesn't mean I won't have a couch uh, one day in the house, but as of this moment, uh, the result of a critical thinking exercise around how do I want to live and how do I want my guests to interact when we have guests at, the, at our apartment um, yielded a couch is, the, is not the answer. It's the exact opposite of the answer. So we don't have yeah. traditional furniture in the house. And uh, I haven't owned a car in three or four years. Purposely placed myself at the center of downtown, right at Rob High, like the geographic center of the city of Columbus. So I can get to every bus line. I can bike pretty much anywhere. I can get anywhere fast. Um, 
and then not need a car to execute my groceries, my professional life, my uh, um, you know entertainment. It all happens within a pretty small radius, and and that's all intentional. And uh, critical thinking is what got me there. And I try to apply it in little ways and then like huge ways as well. Bold Penguin's Ilya Bodner was raised in an entrepreneurial environment. He took inspiration from those relationships and that progress while he found himself as a person in America. Was it the kind of like almost chip on your shoulder or that, you know, that fuel that brought you into entrepreneurship or is that also kind of in the DNA bloodline, you know, in the fact that your parents, I mean, the risk that they took, you know, again, when you described the, you know, if you were presented with that option and, and they said yes to it, I mean, the courage and, and, and maybe it's that like the other option was so bad, they just had to take the risk, but still most people don't. So where does this kind of, you know, um, entrepreneurial and or, you know, um, aversion to risk or, or, or tolerance for risk uh, come from? Yeah. So um, I, think, I think a couple of things, uh, but before I go to where I think it came from, what actually was happening around me when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever, every adult male figure around me um, had their own little business. Uh, one of my uncles uh, became a taxi cab driver. He got a medallion. He got a crew working for him. My dad bought a sewing uh, kit, and then he ultimately started sewing things out of the other bedroom in our apartment and called it his mini business that grew all right. Um, and then somebody bought a pawn shop. Somebody became a musician and did venues. So they were all, I didn't know the word at the time, entrepreneur, but they were all quote unquote, small business owners and, and doing things. And, and again, it's all relatives. When you actually start counting the money, sure, maybe a hundred bucks doesn't mean much these days. But back then, US dollars, and you could do so much with it. It was just, it was fascinating. So what was happening around me is that a lot of people were doing that and they were trying to make a name for themselves. Um, and I don't know where, exactly where that fuel came from, but that's what they were doing. And so I just grew up immersed in that. The other thing that was going on is um, I was just constantly reminded at every twist and turn that um, you can really be whatever you want to be here. You don't have that thing in your passport that has your ethnicity and religion. You, you can become whatever the hell you want and no one here will stop you. You can wear you know, whatever you want on the street, whatever color, any time of the day, and there won't be somebody saying to you, no, go home. Uh, well, you know, most of the time here. Um, I guess I'm embellishing a little bit, but you get the idea. And I just had this like drilled in over and over and over. Um, and I was seeing it over and over and over. And that felt great, man. That felt awesome. Um, yeah, sure. Kids pick on you at school, but when adults give you that kind of encouragement, it's actually happening a lot around you. That was fascinating. Now, when I go back as an adult to like think about all that, sure, that was that, that's all wonderful. Um, I do think that my family heritage has a lot to do with it because at every generation we have moved, that at every generation there was some terrible, terrible thing that happened that you got, got to get through. Uh, and they did. And now I'm complaining about the size of my Starbucks order. And it's, <laughs> you laugh because every problem is like 
silly little thing. Yeah. Well, your Starbucks order is a bit um, com- intricate. So it's not like my black coffee. So you have a little more to complain about there. Um, well, it, it's, it's, uh, it makes sense. And, and I do think that there's this um, you know, environmental thing and this heritage and then your own experience that really contribute to your state of being and you know, um, having smart, hardworking, motivated people hustling and being creative all around you has got to have an impact, especially when this has been going on for generations. Debbie Penzone turned a childhood medical ailment and its resulting social stigma into an accomplished career in the beauty and wellness space as president and CEO of Penzone Salons and Spas here in Columbus. Tell me about kind of how you start to think about um, cosmetology and just where you're maybe headed with your life. Is that coming in for you in high school? Oh, gosh, yeah. Even in in middle school, I was doing everybody's hair. I I permed my brother Timmy's hair, Um, (laughs) you know, and I would have girlfriends come over and and do, you know, cut bangs in their hair and um, all that kind of stuff. I, you know, literally I have a picture on one of my vision boards that I shared with our team um, in a power circle, whereas the picture of me as a little girl with my little curling iron and my bag of makeup. Like I was all about beauty and, uh, and giving that to others. I was always kind of creative. I always took studio art. I loved art classes and crafts. I always did like decoupage and um, crafts and different things like that, you know, um, with my mom and my grandma a lot growing up. But in middle school, I did have a skin disorder called eczema. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book in 2011 11 called Debbie's Club, Discovering mm-hmm. My True Beauty for Girls. And it was kind of my experience that I went through not just seeing the outer beauty of people. Because at that time that I went through sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, it was kind of, um, you know, made me realize that there's more than that outer shell of beauty. Mm-hmm. And I would sometimes get made fun of because of my rash. And they thought that. It was contagious and you might catch it. It showed up on my eyelids and around my nose and my ears and on my arms. And, um, and it felt different. It felt uh, not pretty. Mm-hmm. And that was a real rough time for me to go through that. Um, and I think that really helped me too. When I got to high school, um, I didn't, you know, it, we got medication that really helped it. It was usually mm-hmm. just in the winter time when it would get really bad and scratch mm-hmm. and itch and everything. Um, so I, I, I saw, you know, that I wanted to see people for who they were and I didn't want to ever judge people. And I knew how hurtful words could be and how hard it was when you weren't the popular one, when everybody kind of kicked you out of your own club and didn't want to sit with you at lunch. So those lessons too, that I learned in middle school, I really feel made me the woman I am today Mm. because I have a totally different outlook on popular people or beautiful people or what society says is beautiful and, and all that outer shell of beauty. So that when I did end up, you know, going to cosmetology school, I didn't judge people or see them in any way like that. You know, yeah. everybody to me, I, I, I wanted to get to know them, who they are inside. Another theme this episode is product markup. 
author and coach Rob Dubay taxed his customers in high school for drugstore snacks on the first step of his entrepreneurial journey. But let's talk about you as a high school entrepreneur. You know, you're, you're a bit trailblazing. You're selling blow pops um, and, and turning this into a business. And, you know, as you said, you, you do it with your friend who ends up being your business partner for life. And, and, you know, there's no question there's some important things that are happening along the way that, that leads to where you are today. Tell me a little bit about kind of that initial spark. You know, what, what leads you to decide that you want to make money or be in business or do this at all? You know, I feel that there was a sense of freedom that came along with that. Like I wasn't employed by anybody. I got to make the rules. I got to pick what I wanted to do and when I did it. And that's all on reflection, by the way. I I think at the time, I didn't realize that those were the boxes I was checking, but that was the feeling that I was getting. And, and so I can't even remember, quite frankly, how it became Blow Pops. I do remember the circumstances which Joel's uncle owned a drugstore and somehow the two of us had realized that um, this candy wasn't in the school store, these Blow Pops, and we loved them. And so he was willing to sell us these boxes of Blow Pops for a nickel each. We sell them for a quarter. And we'd have all these kids coming to us in our uh, lunch period. And we would have a bag full of quarters, a Ziploc baggie full of quarters by the end. And I loved that feeling that I just provided somebody happiness. You know, they walked away with something and they were so happy. And I had profits, you know, in this baggie and we'd keep it in our pockets. We wouldn't even, you know, we were worried to get stolen out of the locker. I loved all that feeling. You know, that feeling of freedom, that feeling that I had some money that I could do what I felt was best with it. And, uh, and I think that was kind of the beginning spark of what led to, you know, some other, all little things along the way. But nonetheless, we were always trying something different and trying to figure out a way that we could make a buck on our own and have some fun doing it. Like Claire, my friend and cousin, and serial entrepreneur David Schottenstein spent some time selling products that were a little out of his age range, Cuban cigars. But that was only after dabbling in the stock market as a child. So you're you're starting to trade the family stock account, and and is this is this your your parents? Like whose account is this that you're no. now getting so access a, to? And how old were you? I was so the first time I got access to it, I think I was twelve or thirteen, and I had um, it was the it was my own custodian account. So it was I had like a, a trust uh, account, and I knew there was money in it. And I started buying. I remember the first stock I bought was an internet company called Excite E X C I T E, which eventually got bought out. And then I started trading in a. Um, I would. I was a voracious reader. So I was reading all these business publications. My dad gave me books on stocks at a young age. So I already knew about options. I already knew about all that stuff. And I started buying. I remember I bought a company called Immunex, uh, which then got bought by Amgen. And I was trading and I was, you know, I was, uh, was pretty good at it. Uh, when my father found out, he was livid. Uh, he was happy that I was trading stocks. He was livid that, 
the brokers had had uh, bought the whole spiel I gave them about ha- having my dad's permission to do it. Then uh, when I was 13, my dad took me down to Florida for a week. He went to see our, our grandmother lived in Miami. So we went to see Grandma Jean. And when we were down there, he met an old friend for breakfast at a place called Bagel Time, like a little, one of these old Miami bagel joints. And we're sitting there and this guy has an interesting business. He re- refurbishes ambulances from America and he sells them to South American countries. So I'm sitting there and the whole time he's chewing on a cigar, a big cigar, Cuban cigar. And I'm sitting there watching him. And I said to him, this is when cigars were exploding. Like cigars were on the rise. I said to him, um, you, uh, where do you get those Cubans from? And we start schmoozing. And my, you know, my dad is, you know, doing, I don't know, he was on the phone call or whatever. And he tells me, you know, oh yeah, I have a great source for Cuban cigars. And I said to him, what do you sell a box of Cubas for? And he was a bit surprised that this 13-year-old knows anything about Cuban cigars. Anyways, we start schmoozing. We start, uh, we start wheeling and dealing. And I start a relationship, a, a business relationship with this guy. I'm buying boxes, Cohibas, Lenditos, Churchills, you name it. And I'm selling them all over Columbus. Chris Olson of Drive Capital was 12 years old when he caught bankers making a mistake on his earnings. Luckily for him, his mom was only a phone call away. You don't know this. I don't think we ever talked about this, but my first job was stringing tennis rackets. Okay, there you go. And it's funny to think about really because, you know, I wasn't really thinking so much about what I was doing. I don't really know why it was in me that I felt like I had to work. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents weren't really telling me that I had to work. I think if I remember correctly, it was like just kind of what we did. Like in high school, my friends had jobs in the summertime Mm -hmm. and, and you just worked. And so there was like some sort of maybe even like peer pressure to, to be active and working. And I had plenty of jobs, but uh, I wanted to not have a job. I wanted to have a business. Mm -hmm. And so I bought a tennis racket stringing machine from a kid who had um, strung rackets for Bexley high school and was like sick of doing it. I bought it off of him, put it in my basement and I was in business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny to think about now because then you don't really think like, well, you know, I'm in business, you know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur. You just like, we're doing something that felt like it was fun and enjoyable and, and potentially give you some extra money. Yeah. Um, So we have that in common. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Mine, I wish I could say it was because I wanted to be a entrepreneur in the beginning because that'd be a, be a better story. You know, for me, I, I was just singularly minded. Like I, at the time, I like you know, I wanted independence, and like I wanted my own bank account. I wanted my own uh, everything. And I remember when I was even younger, I was twelve years old. We had like I had to go. I went on this this trip to go play with a squash coach over in England, and I came back with British pounds, and I went to the bank to exchange them for U.S. dollars. And the, uh, you know, I, I remember that so vividly because I went in and like the lady got the exchange rate wrong. And I got in this like big fight with like the teller at the bank because I was like, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it backwards. <laughs> I was like, there are supposed to be more dollars than there are pounds. You're doing the calculation backwards. Mm-hmm. And she's like, nope. And I'm asking the manager and the manager was like doing the same thing um, until eventually it like just escalated up. And I was like, it, it, they, it, they did. Eventually I had to get my mom involved. And, and then <laughs> you were 12. 
Yeah, about 12. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and you were, you know, catching them. I mean, I, it's like a thing probably most people still don't do. It probably happens all the time. Nobody's actually doing the math. They just take the money and, you know. Right. Well, but it was, this was my money. And so right. what finally got him was I asked him because we didn't have cell phones, right? So I asked him to use the phone because I was like, I got to call my mom. I was 12, right? So I'm like near tears. And I called my mom and I was like, what do I do? And I was like, am I wrong? Like, do I? And she's like, no, you're, you're doing it right. And she was like, you tell them that if that's the rate that they're going to charge for British pounds, that I want to put my entire savings account into those British pounds right now and I'll buy them off them um, at that price. And I was like, okay. And I handed the phone back to the lady and I could just see her being like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me just... Okay, hold on a second. And she uh-huh. goes, just can you just hold on? And yeah. then she looks at the math and she calls the manager over again and she's like, This lady on the phone uh-huh. saying that she'll drain her entire account and put it into <laughs> British pounds. Are you sure we're doing it right? And they were like, Oh yeah. you know what? Actually, yeah. no, we're not doing it yeah, right. No. Like the kid's right. It can't be possible. Yeah. And then they were like, Here you go. And I'm sure that, you know, it's probably like 40 pounds. So that's like mm-hmm. whatever, 50 bucks or something. So, but at the time, like that was that was all the money I had and that yeah. was my money. And like, I was very, very protective of it. Not because it was money, but because to me it was like, the, I was using that money for, that was my freedom. Like mm-hmm. That enabled me to go off and buy, for me, it was what was important, which was like, I wanted to buy the new squash racket because I was mm-hmm. really playing a lot of squash and I wanted to get better at it. And I was convinced that like the new racket had the bigger head and the teardrop shape and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I'd been like saving for that. It was like a thing. <clears throat> So like for me, it was like the ability to like control my own destiny. And I convinced myself that if I was successful in squash, then I'd be successful in everything else I wanted to do. That was kind of the, the reason why this teller was like so under my skin where mm-hmm. I was like, you know. He was I'm, in the way of your freedom. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think as I look back on my life, like what has been the motivator for me to do things, it's definitely been that, that drive to want to be able to, to kind of express myself and to be free to do whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that's been a very, very consistent theme for me. Of course, we had to save hot chicken takeovers, Joe DeLoss, and his story of kid magicians for our grand finale. Little Kids and Big Illusions featuring yet another shift of defrauded construction workers that were happy to play along. I did start really forming this entrepreneurial streak really early in my adolescence um, and and was just always interested in making money um, mm. myself. Uh, and so, you know, from kind of my first adventure, we uh, we lived in this subdivision in, in Minneapolis uh, in this community called Lakeville. And, and about only two-thirds of the neighborhood was built. There were all these empty kind of lots everywhere. So there's always construction workers in the neighborhood. And I kind of led this initiative. I, we literally built like a, a, a store on a radio flyer wagon with a cooler, with shelves. And um, my friends and I would steal all of this, um, like cold soda, <laughs> uh, popsicles, candy, snacks from our houses. And we'd go around and like sell sell like cold pop and popsicles to construction workers working out like under the hot Minnesota sun lasted a few weeks until all of, all of our parents realized what we were doing. Um, we were super profitable. Um, yeah. but, uh, Cost of goods was pretty low. Huh? Yeah, really low. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, I had a ton of things like that. 
even in middle school, I, I got into uh, magic tricks and mm-hmm. had a business partner, at, uh, my friend Sean, in, in the seventh grade. And he and I um, built like a little magic partnership and we were doing birthday parties and stage shows, like had animals That's that we were awesome. doing it with. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, what, was the, all- what was the grand finale trick? Uh, we would often we would often make uh, birds appear or disappear. Uh, we also had a bunny um, that uh-huh. we'd make, but we had this big, we had this enormous <laughs> box. I forget what it was called. It it was like a locked uh, giant treasure chest, and um, we would switch between. You'd throw up a curtain in the air. When the curtain dropped, the person that was uh-huh. locked in the box would change. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, it was a. I mean, we were this pretty wasn't impressive. A small this show, is, yeah, it sounds like it. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking there's like a Joe Delos charity magic show at Gravity that's <laughs> happening in the future. But um, I love it. So, and, and how old are you when you're you're doing this? Yeah, middle school. Yeah, seventh grade. And, and do big you, kids with little illusions, or little kids with big illusions, was the name of our of our act. That's great. I love it. Do you guys, um, do you, do you, do you remember kind of like what you were thinking, um, by starting these, you know, early businesses? Were you thinking about money? Was it, what was it that kind of has you, you know, kind of feeling connected to being an entrepreneur at a young age? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of it was the freedom of earning income. Um, to to buy the things that we wanted, you know, mm-hmm. and and we were, you know, especially I had this like relatively charmed suburban life, you know, and so it's not like I I didn't want for much, uh, but had had parents that were always, you know, if I wanted a new bike, I was going to pay for half of it. If I wanted, mm-hmm. you know, so there was this idea, this kind of like work ethic built in that you're going to have to take ownership of these things you say you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of it was for things like that, you know. I remember the first kind of nice BMX bike I bought. I rolled into the store, the bike shop, with um, probably ninety dollars in quarters and change, mm-hmm. um, and uh, had parents that were willing to sit me, you know, sit there and watch me count and <laughs> count change on the counter of a bike shop and, and pay the rest. Um, and so that. I, I think it was always just that sense of ownership of if I want something I can I can I can earn it myself. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at bkaufman125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for the Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.